Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Recovering Entrepreneur Show. I have a guest with me today that we had so much fun. I had to bring her back, and she has some exciting things happening, so even more reason to bring her back. But welcome, Debbie. It's good to see you again. Well, thank you. And I just love the name Recovering Entrepreneur because I, I definitely am one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. It's interesting. It's like, I guess if we can overcome addiction or whatever, even mental or not mental, physical ailments to recover from, um, usually it means we have the capacity to do more. So I guess that's where the entrepreneurship comes in. Yeah. And the recovering, it's, it, it really is almost addictive. I started as an entrepreneur early in my life and I couldn't stop. <laughs> I still can't stop. I still absolutely love business and vision and ventures and, and all the excitement and uh, productivity that comes from it. Yes. It's a different world. And and I was telling you before I, we got on, like, it's not like, it was hard to go back to a W2 job as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's hard to work for other people once Mm -hmm. you get in this mindset, especially because um, I feel like, I feel like we have so much access to things that big companies, they could have access, but the politics to get them all the way up to get them approved or to see their value by the time that happens, I think they'd be outdated, but. Well, it's interesting that talking about going into a W-2 job, because I think that the best organizations want and need entrepreneurs. And and I I have a, a theory, and I've never, I ought to research this theory a little bit, but I have a theory that seems to always play out. And that is that probably only about 10% of the population have true entrepreneurship gifts that they can identify a problem and fix the problem. Because a lot of people can see the problem, a lot of people can fix the problem, but it's it's a rare breed of people that can actually see it and fix it. And so, of course, then in a W-2 organization, as you say, it's frustrating. Yes, that's funny because I always, I've never done the research on this either, but one of my philosophies was um, it's really hard to be a creative person and a business person. So someone who has the gifts to do the operations and yet the creativity to look for different solutions or um, this came up for me as floral, because if you, some people can make beautiful arrangements, but then they weren't managing the books. And that's why a lot of like the mom and pop florists, uh, you know, are fading away, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's almost as if you need to have that, um, that ability to that analytical side. I, you know, left brain, right brain. Some people say that doesn't exist anymore, but it d- seems to in my world, <laughs> you know, you need that analytical side and you need that creative side. And uh, I, I actually was, when I was going through a difficult divorce, I um, met with a psychologist who had me do some psychometric testing and she, she's the one who turned me on to this. And, and that's when I realized, um, and I'd never put two and two together that people, politicians, architects, uh, journalists have that curiosity they have and they have the ability to see and solve problems so and not all of them but uh, to be successful in those fields you need those characteristics and entrepreneurs I believe come into that as well and I think real like real estate brokers too um hmm. anyway yeah I, yeah I, no that makes sense I when you say real estate like I'm picturing staging a house and then the business flow and all of that so well, that was totally an unscripted pathway we went down. 
Exactly. And I have another unscripted question that I want to ask you. And it's been something that's been on my mind. It seems like when I, I started out studying entrepreneurship, when I first started my first business in Great Britain and took a course at Glasgow University, an entrepreneurship course. And um, and the, the UK was under Margaret Thatcher was really into encouraging small business because she could see that small business was going to be the backbone of the country, which, of course, it is all over the world now. And maybe always has been. Um, but it, as manufacturing goes away, we need more and more and more creative small business, successful small businesses. And um, and so entrepreneurship then was kind of a magical thing. But now it seems like everybody and their mother claims to be an entrepreneur. And it bugs me. <laughs> I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, what? how do you see, how do you define entrepreneur? Do you have the same, does it bug you the way it bugs me when everybody calls themselves an entrepreneur? I don't know that it bugs me. Where I struggle is when people want to be an entrepreneur, but they don't understand the finances or the the flow or the operations, right? It It, it kind of has to be balanced, like we were just talking about. Yeah. The, the business and the creativity, as someone who studies a lot of business people, knowing the amount of businesses that fail in the first five years, um, you know, it's, it's startling. It's, it's really pretty startling. So those who are calling themselves entrepreneurs that aren't fully equipped to be a successful one, unfortunately won't be around too long. It's interesting because I'd never tied those two together because the, um, I, I, my, my thought is, or my understanding has always been only about one in 10 survived the first five years. And if, if that's the rate, there you are, you've got your 10% entrepreneurs. And, and yet a lot of successful entrepreneurs fail, fail and fail and fail until they succeed. Um, but the fact that they're entrepreneurs means they keep trying. So that, that kind of correlates with that 10% number. That's interesting. I feel like the legit definition, if we were to look it up, talks about taking risk actually, which mm-hmm. I shouldn't say on my gambling hat on. Um, but I believe that the the derivation has something to do with taking risk, um, uh, financial risk. is, And it's not just risk. It's in, at least in my opinion, to be successful. And you mentioned this, it is, it's um, researched risks. Mm. It's, um, it's risks that are likely to succeed. Um, but would be considered risky by others. So I think it's calculated risks, not yeah. just risks. It's just, it's frankly, just to take risks is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take smart risks. Exactly. <laughs> by all means, take risks, but make them smart risks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just grateful for entrepreneurship and, and the world constantly evolving due to the great ones and, um, yeah, we're just going to keep on trucking with it, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you have another book that just released. Um, so I'd love to dive in. That's three books now that you've written. Mm-hmm. And um, your background, I will frame it for the audience if they didn't catch you the first time. Uh, Debbie's an ex-mayor and understands politics way better than Bobby. So I will be asking through a lens of deliberate ignorance um, as we dive into this. Uh, But what I think 
I think we have to kick off with the question that we were talking about before we even press record. And it was more, the reason I asked was for an intention going into the show. I find that I like to hear what my guests want to get out of the show. It needs to be a win-win. Um, and then when you told me the answer, you shared your answer, it just opened up all these uh, further questions. So Miss Debbie, why, why did you write these books? What is, what do you see happening or what would you like to happen by authoring three of these books? Well, thank you for asking that and setting an intention because that, that keeps me focused where I should be also. So that's excellent. Um, I, uh, wrote my first book, The Happiest Corruption, Sleaze, Lies, and Suicide in a California Beach Town, because I had been involved in local politics for 15 years and had made a lot of headway against corruption that I found that I did not expect. I did not go in to find corruption. I went in to serve my community and then couldn't serve because of the corruption. So we had to take that down first. So when it got so bad, so powerful that I was just beating my head against a brick wall. I thought, okay, I'm going to write about it. I'm going to get the attention. I'm going to write a blockbuster. I'm going to get the attention of um, national authorities, national press and media, and state press and media. And I'm going to keep the local um, or, well, our local branch of the FBI on this case. And they are still on the case. Um, so all of the things that I mentioned, the title, Sleaze, Lies, and Suicide, they all happened, and some are still happening. In fact, one of the guys who went to jail just got let out of jail after about six months, eight months, when he had a 23-month sentence. So that that's scary. And um, the, the second book I wrote is uh, City Council 101, Insider's Guide for New Council Members. And that's because when you run for office or you become elected, there is no playbook. Nobody, they might tell you how to run for office. You can read books about that, but how to be in office, how to really truly be a representative, how to do it with integrity, how to do it within the law, um, within the wonderful opportunities of open government, uh, how to do that. Nobody tells you how to do that. And that, so the book is great, not just for people in counts on councils or in local government, but it's great for people who are interested as citizens and being involved. The third book, I was I wrote a chapter called The Dirty Little Secret of San Luis Obispo County. And that, that was in an anthology with Angel Hartwell called Wickedly Smart Women. Uh, and it let me see if I can get the rest of the, the, the title. It was um, taking Let's see, trusting intuition, tr taking action and transforming worlds. Uh, we set an intuition there. And I said, I don't see how I'm going to transform worlds with this. I could trans, I'm hoping it will transform my community and even my country, but the world. And she said, but Debbie, uh, you want more women in office, don't you? That would transform the world. And as I was writing, I wrote about the corruption I found. I, dis I discovered that the corruption was equally attacked by both men and women, but the ones who in office changed it on boards were women, women, only women in my experience. And it was the women CEOs, it was the business women, it was the entrepreneurs who changed mm -hmm. it. And I realized, oh my gosh, we need more business people in office. We need more entrepreneurs in office. We need more women in office. We are less than 29% represented in this country. And in this country where we talk about equality and civil rights, how is it that we are allowing ourselves to be only 30% represented and men 70%? What's up with that? So 
And as I looked around, I realized, well, is this just my area where women are the ones who are changing their world? Or is this a phenomenon? And so I researched, I found out it's a phenomenon. The United Nations is reporting on it all over the world. And um, where women are in office, there is less corruption. People in those countries that have more women in office universally report being happier. Not just the 50% women, but everybody reports mm-hmm. being happier because that's a gift we have as women. We are good at making people happy and uh, at creating homes and creating um, empathy and um, friendship and rela- at building relationships. And so, which is the key to all of it, of course, communication. And so I realized that we can change the world if we have more women in office. We can change the world. We can make it happy. I love that. It's, I think you asked in that, uh, you know, like why, why is there, you know, not enough women? And and I have a follow-up question to that, but I want to just make an observation from my grocery life. Mm-hmm. I always loved working for the female store managers. Mm-hmm. Now, some I was petrified of, like you knew to not screw up. Um, however, it made me a better manager and a better, you know, employee and stuff. But I always thought that females ran the store better. Um, and it, I don't know if it's an ego thing, um, you know, like do, I don't, I don't know what motivates people to run for, for office, right. Uh, maybe money, but I imagine that's not very big deal. Part you hope of not, you hope yeah. not. We don't get paid a lot at a lot of the local levels. You don't get paid or you get, I got $300 a month, which didn't even cover my expenses. I had no expense, you know, I had no expense account. So um, that didn't even cover my gas to get to all the meetings I had to go to. Um, So um, it anyway, go ahead and I'll, I'll respond. (laughs) So it must, it must have to do with purpose and, and wanting Mm -hmm. to change something or maybe um, if something impacts you as a human, like, I don't know, school districts or tax law. Those are the kind of things that come to mind. So why does someone go into office, I guess, would be the the starting question. So the generic answer, the big answer, I've been, one of the things I've been doing is writing for psychology today, and that's arisen out of all of this. Um, They've asked me to write where women govern, and I write about corruption, happiness, women, and government. And so it's very interesting. At least I think it's interesting. And I think I'm getting a lot of, I've had, I think 10,000 people read my posts in in the last uh, three months. So I think we're, we're making some headway on that, which is good. And um, one of the posts I wrote was about what is the motivation and psychologists have found that there really are two types of people. People either think that they get into office to serve themselves which is to make more money, to, you know, improve their career, move up the ladder, um, take more money, (laughs) or people run for office because they want to serve. And there is only one legitimate reason to run for office, and that is to serve. That's to represent. Um, And initially, uh, things were set up when we set up our constitution 300 years ago, they were set up so that people would move into office for a while and then they would go back to the regular employment. And, and, and I think that is such a representative way of doing office of, of doing governance. And so I would, um, I would, and 
I would ask if you're running for office for any reason other than to serve, don't, please don't. Go go make your money somewhere else legitimately, but don't try to steal it from the people. Because when your motivation is to serve yourself, that is what you will do. And you, the only way you can serve yourself is to take from the people you serve. And um, that is illegitimate and illegal. And um, so not to say that everybody who goes in with a motive of serving themselves is corrupt, but the odds are much higher if people go in with that motive, because that's, that's how they operate. That's what they, that's where they go. And um, so in answer to your question, the only real reason to run is to serve. So where my brain just went was going back to the question of why is there not more women? When we talk about equality, when I think about a woman, one of the first uh, attributes is, you know, like caregiver, server, uh, you know, mother. So it kind of makes me wonder, do you think that one of the reasons the population of female people in governance is less because they're like burnt out from serving in the rest of their life or? Of course. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's a dirty business. Politics is a dirty business and it's difficult. For me, I had lived abroad and understood what it was to be first perceived as an ugly American because that's where people go sometimes. And I then I uh, got involved in real estate and I understood what it was like to not be trusted because you're selling something. Um, and so I, I developed a pretty thick skin. And then in politics, it got thicker and thicker and thicker. And that's no problem with that. That's a healthy thing um, to be able to take criticism and evaluate uh, whether you can do something with it to change or whether you need to or whether it's it's unfounded um, and not to take it personally. And I think that's I'm, I'm going to go off the off the agenda a little bit here, because I think understanding that it's not about me is the most important part of being involved in politics. It's not about you. It's about the people you're serving. It's about the mission of the organization or the mission of the country. And so, um, and that's where you have to go with it. So going back to women, do they not run? Yes, of course, we wear so many hats and we still do more of the household management than men, even when we're in relationships for the most part, um, statistically. Yeah, of course, we're burnt out, we're tired, um, and it's dirty business. But in the countries, for instance, um, the United Nations did a study of African city councils or community councils, and they found that the councils that were run by women in those communities, they had safe drinking water. The quality was there. Mm. It was not as good in the communities where they were run by men. Because women care about those things. But if you think about it, that affects health. And those kinds of things are what make people happy or not happy. It's whether or not the country is looking out for them. And it doesn't, and I'm not talking about welfare. I, well, I am talking about welfare, but not in the financial sense. I'm just talking about well-being. And um, and they found the same in Norway. Very different than, the, than I think, Nigeria. Um, but in Norway, 45% of the people elected are women. They do very well, and they are one of the happiest countries in the world, according to the people who live there. Um, they rate themselves very happy. And um, but it, on the councils that are run by a majority of women, the childcare resources are much better than on the councils mm. run by men. 
And that makes everybody happier too. Because if your kids are happy and your wife is happy, the men are happy too. (laughs) You know, you've got to all be happy together. So um, I, I, I just would strongly encourage women that we do not have a balanced country and we do not have a balanced country now, and we will not have a balanced country until we have um, the gender balance corrected. We're fifty-one and forty-nine for a reason. If you if you believe in God, I mean, he 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 made us fifty-fifty for a reason, and um, that 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 balance should be there in our governance also. Wow, my my brain just went to a bunch of different things. So. If I, so I'm intrigued by this, but I would be too scared to run for office for a few reasons. One, I think it's a full-time job to have all the information to do a good job, which is why I've never really paid attention. Like if, if there's issues that are important enough, they somehow end up on my radar. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I think in order to be really educated and I'm not, talking just current event news, but even to go back to history class with the constitution and, uh, you know, the branches and all of that. I totally don't remember any of that. Um, That's okay. Most people don't. And I would say, I'm going to say everyone, (laughs) everyone I ever met who was in office didn't know most of that stuff. You don't remember it. And then a lot of it's not taught anyway. And um, I didn't either. And that's one of the problems because people tend to think once you're in office, you're going to run it like the good old boys club, or you're going to run it like your rotary club, or you're going to run it, you know, like, like you're going to make up the rules as you go along and you can't because the rules are already there and you have to follow those rules. And they're there for a reason. They're there for really good reasons. So as you begin to understand, and that's why I wrote city council 101, it will teach you what you need to know and you will go into it understanding with the right focus. And it's, you know, it's an easy read. It's I think, I don't know, 130 pages or something. So um, you can fast track it. I also have a course um, double dais adventures in local government. And it talks about what is, what it is for both sides. Cause we have to work together with our represented, uh, with our elected representatives. Um, so you don't have to know all that to get started. And for me on the city council, it was a volunteer position. I did it along with, because I didn't make money. I made $300 a month, didn't cover my gas expenses. Um, to do to sit on a city council took me about 20 hours a week and I researched thoroughly and I paid a lot of attention and you sit on other committees and things that make decisions that most people never even know about but they're paying for and um and so it depends on the size of the city if you work for a large city you can earn hundreds of thousands and it is absolutely a full-time job and can be because you earn enough um as mayor it was full-time and I would encourage people to start And this would help a lot if you can start by working on a planning commission, being appointed to a planning commission or being appointed to a uh, parks and recreation commission or whatever commission your city or community has. Get appointed and then you get to know the ropes. And after you've done that, then you can run for city council. And once you understand how city council works, then run for mayor. Um, By then you'll you'll have the exposure. People will know who you are. You'll have the supporters. You'll have, you know, made built relationships Um, but you'll also have the background that you need. Okay. Or go to city, just go to the meetings. That's how you figure it out. Go to the meetings. 
<laughs> in fact, if you run without going to the meetings, I'm going to slap your hand at, at, at least. <laughs> because if you're not going to the meetings, what what are you even doing there? If right. you haven't at, even seen what they do and how they operate. So first step is go to the meetings. As as we're talking, I'm I'm picturing this big movement in my head, like the Debbie movement with um City Council <laughs> 101, get more women in office, and like just this whole thing of of going through the cycle and getting taught. Cause I imagine there's a there's a fear of letting people down, of not knowing what you're doing, of um never mind the day-to-day. Like at city council level, I'm imagining it's not like how the president has six people around telling them what to make a decision on this and this. And, you know, what do you say to the press or whatever all of that looks like? I imagine it's a little bit more independent than that. It is. You don't have you don't have clerical support and usually not in most smaller communities. Um, in larger communities, you absolutely would have clerical support. And And the other thing is that this and this makes it easier to some extent is that you're operating as a board and so as an individual council member you don't you don't make the decisions about what goes on in the decision i mean in the community the people who make the decisions are the board as a whole so you vote on things and it's the board majority that that determines decisions and it and in in most communities they have um the setup is that you have your board and then you employ a city manager who does the day-to-day stuff. So it's really more like sitting on a board. It's more, it's more an oversight function. Um, and uh, city councils actually are legislators. They're creating, uh, amending, improving local laws. And so it's, it's, um, well, that helps you understand a little bit about how it works. It does. How do you- I'd love to have you run for office. You'd be fabulous. <laughs> when we get to president status, that's that's what yeah, I Yeah, you can run for president, sure. Yes. <laughs> I go for that. <laughs> um I got I got a few more things to cross off my to-do list, but um it's funny because there really is this little voice inside of me that's like, what if um part of my purpose is to change <laughs> so this is totally not the question I was going to ask you, but one of the things that makes me, let me write down my question because it's a good question. Um, one of the things I that have to take notes cra- too. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that makes me crazy is, and I know that people value this, so I'm going to probably be in the minority, but how the different states um, have different rules and, and things. So for example, um, my driver's license, my commercial driver's license. When I moved from Connecticut, I didn't want to give it up because I really worked hard for it in Connecticut. It was easier to pass in other states. And then I eventually lost it because the states didn't talk to each other and I would have had to do stuff. So that kind of stuff makes me nuts. Like if we could do federal for some things, let's do federal for things that are important to me. So there's, there's things that fall into that bucket. Um, and then treatment the whole the whole part of how 321 was born was when i lived in kansas i didn't have to pay for treatment cuz the state had a situation but my friend in wisconsin had to pay for treatment out of his pocket because they didn't have that in their government so why is it more fair for a kansas person to go to rehab than a wisconsin one so i i guess i kind of like equality 
I guess. Yeah, no, those are, those are really, really good questions and they're structural questions. And, and, um, I think that it comes down to the fact that we are a federal republic. That's and and don't ask me to go into detail on that. <laughs> Just go look it up. But um, um, effectively, the the federal government, our founders, did not want it to have too much power. They wanted the power to stay in the hands of the people. So if the United States is dictating all those individual, more local decisions, then um, then there's less freedom and it's less accessible. And uh, and and yet what you're saying, and it's something that I see, is that um, systems don't talk to one another. And so in in situations like crime and gun violence, somebody can be committing a horrific crime somewhere and then cross a state border. I mean, it's nothing more than a geographical line and do the same thing. And because the systems don't communicate with each other from state to state, then you have um it gets repeated and repeated and you can't resolve it. And so now there are other solutions. The solutions are that we could communicate with each other. (laughs) (laughs) We could work together. Now now Um, that sounds like a regular company. Women would fix that because women do work together and women see solutions to the kinds of things that you're talking about. They find ways. Um, And I know that's what you've been about is finding a way to support rehab and, um, and I'm with you all the way on that. Historically, that's what women did. Even before they had the vote, they were working on those kinds of things and that make the country better and happier and um, and fulfill its obligation for the well-being of its citizens. And George Washington said that. He said the sole purpose of government is to make people happy. That's what he said. And and so uh, women women would get that. And and it's not I mean, it's not the only thing we do, but it's the outcome that we're looking for, because obviously you have to do a lot of things to get that outcome. So that's, and that's why it's individualized. Um, In some cases it goes too far because you can get, you know, you get the federal government, the state government, and then the uh, county government, which is a subdivision of the state, and then cities, which are completely separate units from all of it and weren't even accounted for in the original constitution. They're in the state constitutions. And then you get Beneath that, all these committees I was talking about that make decisions. And those committees are things like sewer districts and water districts and who any kind of district you can think of. Well, a lot of times those aren't elected positions. People from different councils, city councils or community councils or, or the county will sit on those boards. And and so no one really knows about them. No one pays any attention. And there are terrible issues in those, and, and they're supposed to be overseen by the state, but they're not because the county is supposed to approve things and nobody pays any attention. And the corruption is rife. Um, there, and, and in fact, um, uh, oh, well, I, never mind. I can't remember his name right now, but one, one of our comedians did the most incredible story on, um, ghost, what do you call them? Ghost commissions, ghost districts. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to go into that, but, so, you know, there, there's the other side, there's the, the one side of it is the intention is that government is in the hands of the people. Um, but the other side of it is if you, if you take it down too far in small enough areas, then um, you may not have the people to pay attention to the government. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept that as an answer. The, the reality is that is our job is our government. So if you don't like it, shut up and go do something. Quit talking about it and go do something about it. The only reason you should be talking about not liking it is talking about finding solutions and um, 
and then and then go go tell your representatives what you don't like. Go to the meetings, uh, send them a letter, shoot them an email, text them, whatever you need to do. Um, but don't just talk about it. Do something about it. Are you talking to me or are you talking to everybody right now? Talking to everybody. Okay, just checking. <laughs> I'm not talking. No, I, I'm not targeting you here. <laughs> I'm targeting everybody. I'm, no, I'm you just got very serious. Yeah, no, I'm targeting we the people. And I'm saying that we the people, our, our government is set up to be run by us. And it's our job to do that. And we've lost track of that entirely. Um, we've got to get back to that if we want it to work better. All right, I have one more question. This one's my hard mm-hmm. one. Not one more until we end, but one more until you can look at your notes and if there was things that you wanted <laughs> to do. Um, so let's say you're the mayor and you have people on both sides of an issue. How do you decide? Do you decide, if I remember right from one of my classes, there's something like where you make a choice and it's the least amount of harm for the most people? Or, yeah. Um, yeah. But how do you get there? The question is, how do you get there? Yeah. So, you, get there? you know, how do you make that decision? Of course, the majority rules, but how do you get to that? And so, um, and that's what I love about the system. It's one of the beauties of the system. Robert's Rules of Order covers this very well. And this is why there are things that we should understand that I teach about. And um, when you're in a in a government meeting, it's going to be chaired by the mayor or the president or um, whoever's been nominated to be the chairman of that board. And, and, and that person, uh, there's an order to the, to the meetings. And that's why it's good to go to the meetings because you can figure out where you fit in, where you get to say your piece as the public. So they start, um, if you have an item on the agenda that affects the public, it starts with usually a report of some kind by usually a member of staff who are the ones who research the issue and they'll, and there are ways to do good reports and not do good reports. And I cover that too in the books. Um, and after that report, then if there are any questions that the council needs to ask for to clarify, they can ask their questions about the report. Then the mic is open to the public and the public will have two or three minutes to share their opinions and their views. Once that's happened, it comes back to the council and the council then talks about it amongst themselves taking into account the views of the public, having heard from the public. And a decision is not made, a motion is not made until um, they've thoroughly discussed it or a motion may be made, but it's not voted on until it's thoroughly discussed. That can be done in different orders. And so it's at that point, having listened to the public, received their letters, their emails, their texts, their phone calls, had meetings, whatever it takes to hear from the public, it's at that point that they deliberate and make a decision and are able to make that decision in the best interest of the majority of people, um, provided that's their objective. And, you know, if there's corruption, that can be swiveled the wrong way but um that's that's that that's how it works and it works really well and that's why it's so important for everyday people to come to meetings and tell their representatives what they want because if you don't tell me what's happening on your street where you live in your rehab where you need help then you know in your care in as a caregiver or in your nursing home or any of anything on your street that affects you if you don't tell us, we're not omniscient. We're not God. We can't legislate legislate on your behalf. We can't. How do you represent someone when you don't know what they want? So that's why it's so critical for people to um, to pay attention and to go to meetings and to 
tell tell their elected representatives what their jobs are, give them their marching orders. I I imagine two things as you just described that one that epic scene in those movies you know where someone comes running in um so I think that's what you're talking about where that yeah. real good speech always changes everybody's mind um, and it does it can mm-hmm. and then the second yeah. was when you're talking about these committees I was picturing like a jury analyzing the stuff and have it going back and forth again uh to come up to it's a similar process i never put the two together but it is a very similar process you're looking at the evidence and you're making a judgment making a judgment call Mm -hmm. so like a president or a mayor or these in my head they're solo rules not committees how does it work for them so the mayor has to use the committee's choices too it's not yeah in some cities and these are the ones you see on TV, the big cities. Uh, the mayor's role is an executive position. He is a chief executive. But in most communities, the mayor is only one of five board members. The mayor isn't God. The mayor doesn't make the rules. Um, the mayor is the one who communicates with the press and media if if they're gifted that way. And sometimes they pass that on to the city manager. Um, and the mayor is the one who runs the meetings. So they're the chairman of the board, essentially. Um but they cannot make decisions independent of the council. Um, it's the, it's three, if it's a five member council, it's three out of five votes or four or five that determine what's going to happen. It's not the mayor. Interesting. Okay. I'm all caught up on my questions. You <laughs> are. And they were really insightful questions. Best ones I've had on that. Really? The, yeah. These are things that um, I don't know that we talk about, right? Like I don't don't. talk about this with my friends or my family, right? It's, we talk about maybe the issues, but Mm -hmm. not even calling them the issues, just how things impact life or whatever. So um, thank you for letting me have a place to solve my curiosity. And a platform to, to make it so clear to other people. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. So what do you have in your notes over there, Miss Debbie? Well, you know, I was mostly take, I think I mostly answered um, what you were talking about. I just, I learned a lot today in the conversation and from you, I, what I did want to do was to let people know how they can access this information. And so um, if you just want a really good story of what goes wrong when you don't pay attention, um, and it's a great story, is go to The Happiest Corruption, and you can get that on Amazon. Um, anything that interests you that I've discussed, you can find a connection to it from my website, which is really simple. It's just my name.com. So it's Debbie, D-E-B-B-I-E-T-E-T-E-R-S-O-N.com. And um, I have my blogs there and my links to my Psychology Today blog and um, links to Amazon to find the books. The other book, City Council 101, is also there. They should be available in any bookstore or on Amazon, wherever you get your books or in your local, even in your local library. Often, if you ask them, they'll order it for you. Um, So anytime any of these things are of interest and the Wickedly Smart Women book is the same all the same places. So um, I do also have a a podcast called Corruption Chronicles, and it is stories of corruption and how people have fixed it. Um, In some cases, it's stories of corruption that I can validate uh, that really need just to be out there, because when you put it out there, it makes the difference. That's what fixes it. So um, uh, if you're interested in the podcast, you can link on that link to that from my website, DebbiePeterson.com also. 
Beautiful. I'm glad you have it all in one spot. Um, and they can reach out to you and, and take city council 101 with you, right? Like get all prepped. Yeah, you can do the online course. Uh, you can do double dias adventures in local government and, and you can listen to it as you drive or whatever you do when you listen, wherever you listen, you walk, you exercise, or you can watch it. So I did it in both then same with the podcast. It's both video and most people are doing that now. Most, most video and both video and voice. So you can, um, you have lots of options on that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Debbie. I got so much value out of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I can be your coach when you run for office. <laughs> okay. I'm good with that. I, yeah. I don't, you think it would be fun to have a president that isn't political? Like, like, yes. Coach, coach me on the things. Um, but let me go into it with my open brain and the way that I see things. Like I seriously, please. Yes. That's, I think that was the original point. I know when our, when our constitution was set up, the founders were so worried about politics. And I think politics is the worst possible thing going on because it basically becomes um, a monopoly. And I think monopolies are very frightening and unhealthy. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, Local offices are normally nonpartisan, although people tend to make them partisan, but you run on a nonpartisan ticket. And if we could do nonpartisan all the way up to the top, I'd be as happy as could be. And if we could take money out of it, I would be happy because that does corrupt it. Well, and that's that's actually part of when I think about like right now, all the money that I want is to build the the chain of recovery playgrounds, mm-hmm. right? And to start the nonprofit and to do everything the way I envision it. And it's like $10 million pop. So I understand that's going to take a minute, but <laughs> I don't think that I need to spend another 10 million on a campaign. I think people are going to just love the three, two, one model that everybody's going to be excited. It's going to be like a Disneyland of recovery. Like everybody's going to be talking about it. So then I can get voted in as president because people will understand how my brain works. So. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) That's my strategy. Go for it. Go for it. You have my support. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. But yes, you absolutely could be my coach. God knows I'll need one. (laughs) You'll probably need several. I'll I'll be one. (laughs) Okay. That sounds good. Well, thanks again for being here, Debbie. I really did enjoy this. It was fun to talk. Thanks. Thanks again to you too. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. 